Today from the Global Lane, allegations of U.S. election fraud, CIA computer servers used to electronically manipulate votes. This is very dangerous time for America. Do you declare insurrection or do you try to play it out through the courts? Slanted, American media influencing minds, embracing political narratives and censorship. It's almost like there's no longer any pretense of hiding it. Unity, the possible impact of a Joe Biden presidency on Christians and American culture. We're looking at the risk of the loss of religious freedom. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. Where's the evidence? Pressure is on the Donald Trump campaign to show its hand to reveal evidence of electronic vote fraud. Dominion Voting Systems denies allegations that its machines deleted or changed votes. On Mark Levin's radio program, Trump legal team member, former federal prosecutor Sidney Powell said she has plenty of evidence of fraud. Powell alleges the evidence includes a signed affidavit from a man who says he witnessed Dominion and Smartmatic vote manipulation in Venezuela. He was present for the creation of the system for the specific purpose of uh, falsifying election results for Hugo Chavez and then Maduro. They exported it all over Latin America. It's the Smartmatic and Dominion system specifically built for doing this very thing for changing the results of elections. He saw it done. He knows exactly how they do it. He explained how they do it. Ms. Powell alleges the same hardware and software was used to wipe away votes in the U.S. presidential election. Well, here with more is commentator and author Michael Schur. Dr. Schur is a former CIA analyst and former adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Michael, it's good to have you with us again. So first, I've got to ask you, do you believe votes were manipulated, changed electronically, in favor of Joe Biden, and if so, how was it done? Well, I certainly do believe it, sir, because I saw it on TV uh, on the crawls underneath um, uh, television coverage of the election. Uh, at least two cases, uh, one had about 12,000 votes that magically went from uh, Trump to Biden, uh, and another one about 20,000 votes. And both times, Trump's numbers decreased by exactly the number that Biden's increased. And so before any of this came about, I just had a, um, a strong inkling that uh, something was afoot here. And the more they suggest that the intelligence service, our intelligence service were involved in it, I tend to think that there probably was a great deal of, of vote marking uh, by, by people when they found out how many votes they needed to, to surpass Trump in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan. I think clearly the Dominion Company, if nothing else, it's foreign interference in the American election. It's a Canadian company. And uh, it, it was storing its records in Germany and Spain for some reason. And most of all, the idea that the U.S. government at all levels, apparently, especially at the state level and local level, are contracting for non-bureaucrats, non-government workers to count votes. That seems to me to be just entirely unacceptable, like our military buying equipment from China. Well, Michael, who was behind this then? Uh, certainly were, um, appear to be part of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, using, uh, uh, for, for their political operations overseas, they use servers and store materials and, and do other things. 
Uh, and the fact that the ones in Germany are, were held or grabbed by uh, U.S. forces because they were CIA op uh, um, uh, servers. And in Europe, the CIA operates under the jurisdiction of the military. And so the military was responsible for seizing those with the help of the German uh, authorities. And those servers are now in the hands of the FBI, which doesn't make me very comfortable, but at least they're in American hands. So that did so show I mean, that there was a CIA connection then? Well, if, according to the media, and no one has refuted it, sir. Uh, I, I, I saw that at one point the agency said it had no comment. At least that's what was reported in the media. And um, it certainly follows uh, almost as night follows day the agency's attempt with the FBI to prevent Trump from getting the Republican nomination, then trying to throw him out of office. You and I spoke before about an insurrection in this country, and that's exactly what we're watching. But only now, since we last spoke, we have seen a coordinated, violent, murderous campaign by uh, the Democrats' terrorist groups, Antifa and Black Lives Matter, across the country. So the president stuck, is stuck here with a very, very hard decision. Um, uh, do you declare insurrection or do you try to play it out through the courts? It seems to me, and I think it's the correct answer, to um, uh, play it out through the courts, and they seem to have the evidence, or at least that's what they claim. Michael, do you believe there's sufficient evidence then to prevent Joe Biden from assuming the presidency? What do you expect may happen now? Well, I think they may over overthrow the election, but I wrote a piece on my blog last week, sir, that this president, I said basically life is full of hard decisions. And this president may have the hardest decision that ever any American ever had uh, to make. Do you turn over power to a man who is clearly implicated in uh, taking money from the Chinese government in favor of himself and his family? You have solid evidence for that through his son's computer. Do you give the authority of the president to a man who is now indicted in the Ukraine for trying to extort or succeeding in extorting the firing of an officer that was of a lawyer that was looking into his son's business. Uh, I guess I'm we're going to have to see how all of this plays out, aren't we? Uh, well, sir, th this is very dangerous time for America because there's seven, 73 million people who know everything you need to know about Biden and everything you need to know about the attempts to uh, overthrow the American government. And if you look at most places on the internet to buy ammunition, you can't get any because it's sold out. Okay, Michael Shore, commentator, author, former CIA analyst. Thank you, Michael, for sharing your insights. Appreciate you being here. Oh, it's always a pleasure, sir, and I, I'm grateful for being asked to be here. In this era of fake news and social media censorship, no wonder Americans have little trust in mainstream media. A Gallup poll taken just prior to the election found that only 9% of those questioned said they trust the media a great deal. About one-third, 33% said they don't trust the media at all. Cheryl Atkinson is a veteran journalist, former CBS investigative reporter, and host of the Sunday morning program Full Measure. Her new book is Slanted. How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Cheryl, thank you for taking time to share your insights. In your book, you talk at great length about the media narrative. You say, quote, 
whatever supports the narrative is automatically awarded credibility. Anything that uh, fights it is treated as questionable. So how did it get to this point? Explain what you see happening today. It used to be a more subtle thing, but I'll bet your viewers have noticed it's almost like there's no longer any pretense of hiding it. It used to be that we sort of self-censored what we put on the news, and we used rational judgments as to what would make it on the nightly newscast with all the news that was out there. But slowly but surely, through a process I described partly in my last book, The Smear, a whole industry understood how to pull our strings and get their nose under the tent of news organizations so that they can decide what we do put on TV, what we don't put on TV, also other news sites, and more importantly, how it's shaped, how it's manipulated to try to shape public opinion in a way that you will not hear viewpoints that they've decided are harmful to their interests or, in other words, off narrative. This didn't begin with Donald Trump, yet he gets a lot of the blame from mainstream media about this. He's depicted as a liar, a clown. Joe Biden even said that to his face in a presidential debate, and I know the media didn't challenge him on that. And now with questionable election results, allegations of fraud, it seems the media is trying to force Trump to concede. It was just the opposite, as you remember, in 2000, when Al Gore challenged the results for 37 days. So why don't they see or acknowledge the different treatment? You know, this is all part of the idea that they're not, in many instances anymore, out to reflect the facts on the ground. They're simply there to put forth a narrative. They're not acting as news as we once knew it or as journalists as we traditionally understood them to be. They're simply trying to forward certain political or corporate interests. So from that standpoint, they're succeeding quite well when they make sure they put forth a narrative. But you use your cognitive dissonance when you watch the news and you say, as you do, just did, this doesn't make sense. I call it the substitution game. When you know that but for the name being changed to a different party, something would be handled entirely differently, you know that there's a narrative at play or there's somebody trying to manipulate an outcome or public opinion. And I like to ask the question when it comes to the election, how would it have been covered if not for the narrative? How would this have been covered if journalists had, had approached this from a neutral standpoint? And I think you have a whole different landscape if that had been the case, both building up to this election and what's happened since. Two other examples. It seems that if you don't go along with a narrative that COVID-19 is the biggest disaster to hit the United States, that everything should shut down, all of us should be forced to wear masks, then you're labeled a coronavirus denier. And I know that happened to you. Tell us about what happened to you. Well, you know, I hadn't even really reported much on coronavirus, except in the very beginning when I was trying to research it, I published all of the, what we knew about the deaths that had occurred so far. And what I published turned out to be very similar to some stories done in the New York Times and the Washington Post, but somewhere along the way, for reasons of narratives and trying to controversialize certain people, I got attacked in a New York Times piece, New York Times piece with completely false information about what reporting I'd done, false quotation. I wasn't the only one, by the way, in this story, where they called all of us coronavirus doubters. And who knows why they decided to pull certain people out and try to controversialize them so people wouldn't listen to our reporting. I only knew it was completely false had to hire a lawyer because the New York Times would not take down the false information. And we finally forced corrections that, of course, probably almost nobody saw. But this shows you that there is a big, deep narrative at play. And the New York Times was really on that train from the start. You also have an entire chapter on the Russia investigation. You mentioned that not only did it reveal a massive FBI scandal, but also a massive media scandal. 
because what the media claimed over two years was completely false. Why were there no media corrections or apologies to Donald Trump, at least as you point out to Carter Page, or the American people? Without that, many Americans still believe the narrative that the president and others were involved in colluding with the Russians. One of the biggest scandals of our time, how the news media has changed and redefined what it means to be a journalist so that they could weaponize their efforts against the president that they decided they didn't like or who was an outsider and not in with the proper money and political interest that they wanted him to be in with. And the media just threw out basically longstanding ethics rules and guidelines and even proudly said that we were doing it and said it was to address a uniquely dangerous president. I argue that there is never a more important time to follow our guidelines and standards, that's why they exist, than when we perhaps don't like the subject of our reporting. Otherwise, we don't really need them. We need them to make sure our behavior is consistent and our reporting is accurate, even when we have an emotional feeling about somebody we're reporting on. Instead, all of this wild misreporting based on you know, innuendo, things that would never have been reported, anonymous sources, wrong sources, things that wouldn't have been done 10, 15 years ago. A lot of people would have been fired if this had happened. And there were not these mass, as you said, apologies and firings, because I argue this was all mission accomplished on their part. They were not trying to disseminate the actual facts. They were trying to create this air of controversy and chaos for the couple of years that they did. And when it didn't turn out to be true in the end, as perhaps some of them knew all along, they still had accomplished their goal, in my view. What role do you think 24-7 news and social media play in this advancing of a narrative, the advancement of advocacy journalism? Well, it's big, of course, because we're now saturated everywhere we look, any time that we look anywhere with these news narratives, but it's not just on the news. And I talked about this a little bit more in my last book, The Smear, and some in Slanted, the new book. But the idea that if you look at uh, what comedy shows talk about and joke about. If you look at all kinds of things you don't think of, strings are being pulled by these, I call them smear artists, and some of them have done interviews with me. They're not just pulling strings on the news and on social media in these very obvious ways and outrageous ways. They're pulling strings on it, nearly every form of information that crosses our path in daily lives. It seems the journalism schools are okay with advocacy now. so. What do we do? Is it already too late? I think people need to not accept it, continue speaking out about it, and understand that when they're trying to make you think that you're the only one who has some crazy view and you're not supposed to think it, you're not supposed to believe that scientific study, whatever it is, know that that's not true. Don't live inside this box. They only win, the propagandists, if you live your life inside the box that I call the internet and social media and the news. Make sure you have this reality check, listen to your cognitive dissonance, listen to your friends and neighbors, and live in the world as it exists, not the one they're trying to create, not this artificial reality. Okay, the book is Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Thanks for being with us, Cheryl. I appreciate you having me. Former Vice President Joe Biden says he wants to bring healing and unity to America. But many conservatives and evangelical Christians fear just the opposite may happen if he's sworn in as our 46th president. Would a Biden presidency hasten a moral and cultural decline, or are the nation's best days yet to come? Well, here with some insights is religion and culture analyst Alex McFarland. Mr. McFarland is director of the Christian Worldview Center at North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina. His latest book is The Assault on America, 
how to defend our nation before it's too late. Alex, it's good to have you with us again. So we're seeing legal challenges, ballot recounts, uncertainty about election results, also resurgence of COVID-19. What impact is all of this going to have on our society and culture? It seems we're more divided now than when Al Gore challenged the results for the election uh, 37 days after that 2000 presidential election. What, what do you think is happening? Well, uh, there is a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of instability, economic instability, businesses closing because they're not allowed to open. And, you know, even as, as you and I are doing this interview, Pennsylvania has uh, issued, well, the governor of Pennsylvania has set forth some, uh, I would say, really draconian mandates regarding even wearing masks in your house. And uh, again, we don't know who the president is going to be. Um, the media, I think, uh, very uh, inaccurately is continually referring to uh, Joe Biden as president-elect. And at, at least at the time of this interview, the electors have not certified the votes. And it does appear that uh, President Trump's legal team has some valid, valid data about inaccuracies and even fraud in the election. And so... Well, Joe Biden says he wants to unify the country, but some Republicans are already suggesting they'll launch investigations of his son's relationship with the Chinese communists, the Ukrainians and others. What do you see happening politically if Biden is ultimately sworn in as president? A unified country? Uh, I think if Biden is sworn in as president, we will be more divided than ever because the American people don't want to become socialists. And the Biden campaign... They owe a lot of favors to a lot of people. Uh, everybody from Bernie Sanders to Black Lives Matter Marxists are already demanding their slice of the uh, the pie in terms of uh, laws in the, in the administration. So I, I really think the hard left turn that the Biden presidency and the Democrat Party has made and is making will only further divide the American people. What about societal and government attitudes then and the treatment of Christians? How are they likely to change? Well, uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, if indeed she becomes the vice president, has already said in conjunction with the UN, she wants to put a, a, a department uh, in place of LGBTQ trans rights. And she said the enforcement of those rights. So we're, we're looking at the risk of the loss of religious freedom. And uh, in January of 2020, candidate Biden said, quote, there is no place in the Democrat Party for someone who is not pro-choice. So we're looking at a candidate and potentially an administration that stands against life, against religious freedom. What's it going to take to turn it around? Uh, you know, uh, computers' first line of defense is the firewall, and our body's first line of defense are immunities and antibodies. The culture's first line of defense is the church. Uh, Chuck Colson, my friend, the late Charles Colson, said that the church is the conscience of the culture. So as Christians, uh, whether our numbers are dwindling, diminishing, or growing, or plateaued, but look, those who know the Lord— those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, we must pray and intercede. We need to stay informed and we need to be an influence for Christ. The only hope for the United States of America is the heart 
change that comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And may God grant that this takes place throughout our country on a very pervasive level. Alex McFarlane, author of the book, The Assault on America, How to Defend Our Nation Before It's Too Late. Thanks, Alex, for sharing your insights. God bless you. Thank you, CBN. This Thanksgiving, are you taking your history lesson about America's founding from the Pilgrims or the New York Times? The Times 1619 Project teaches that America's founding government and economy are based on slavery and white supremacy. It's the idea that America actually began in 1619 when the first African slaves arrived in Virginia. Folks, I'm here to share the truth. Like 30 million other Americans, I'm a descendant of Puritans who arrived in North America on the Mayflower in November 1620. Thanksgiving is a perfect time to commemorate the 400th anniversary of that historic event. You see, my ninth great-grandfather, Thomas Rogers, and 101 other pilgrims came to America seeking religious freedom. They fled tyranny and religious persecution in England. The British monarchy decreed that the Puritans and others would be punished if they did not conform to the beliefs of the Church of England. And when Thomas Rogers and 40 others signed the Mayflower Compact, they committed Plymouth Colony to godly governance. They wrote they'd be governed, quote, for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith. And that covenant had a profound and lasting impact on America. Listen to Dr. Jerry Newcomb, producer of the documentary, The Pilgrims. The Pilgrims gave us the Mayflower Compact, which was an agreement for self-government under God, which was really the first step in the creation, ultimately, of the Declaration of Independence and of the U.S. Constitution. So, folks, like the Pilgrims, let's pray and commit ourselves to godly governance. And this Thanksgiving, let's rejoice, be thankful for God's blessings, and for those Pilgrim settlers who provided this country with a godly foundation. They rejected slavery and embraced the freedom and joy which they knew in their hearts could only come from a heavenly king, not an earthly one. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Parlor, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.